When running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations, like getting complaints because someone on the team always smells horrible. You better talk to Bambi. With Bambi, get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month. They're available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. Bambi's U.S.-based personnel are dedicated to your business, giving you access to the HR expertise and personal touch you need. HR managers can easily cost $80,000 per year, but Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Visit Bambi.com slash C-Suite right now. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash C-Suite. Bambi.com slash C-Suite. Megan Gibson. The well-being of one person in a family affects the whole family system. This is a supportive community to share research, resources, stories, tips, and life hacks to keep the family brain healthy. Hi, and thanks for listening to The Family Brain. I'm your host, Megan Gibson. And I just wanted to let you know before I introduce my next guest that I'm going to take a break from recording new episodes as I finish up another project. I want to thank all of you loyal listeners, and I am planning to do some new recordings in the future. I'm just not sure at this point when. So thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy my guest today, Catherine Celery, who is a three-time TEDx speaker. She is the founder of the Conscious Parenting Revolution, which helps parents sort of rethink how they're doing their parenting and really pull back and look at the big picture. She has a free ebook on seven strategies to keep your relationship with your kids from hitting the boiling point. And she has comprehensive training programs for parents and caregivers. So I was really excited to talk to her and very interested in the work that she's doing in parenting training. So thanks so much for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much for joining me on The Family Brain today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. I'm excited to learn more about your work. And I was wondering, so your work or your company is the Conscious Parenting Revolution. Can you talk to me about what got you excited about this work in the first place? What sort of drew you to this field? Yeah. Um, Well, having kids, and starting the parenting journey and definitely feeling like a deer in headlights and not having a manual or anything to support me so that I wouldn't just wash and repeat the patterns from my own family of origin, which were not that healthy. And I didn't feel like I wanted to expose my little, you know, burgeoning family to the same thing that I'd been through, but I had no clue what to do. And I was at a complete loss when it came to a different approach to discipline. Yeah, I love that. I read a little bit on your website and I was thinking, she sounds like me. I I have the books that like what to expect when you're expecting, what to, how to train your child for sleep. And then I was like, where's the next book? Where's the next book? Because it kind of, it, and then it sort of goes in all these different directions and it's really hard to know what to expect. (laughs) And, and part of that is life, 
But another part of it is if we can, you know, find some tools to help move us past those first beginning stages, what do we do? Totally. How old are your kids? I have nine, 11 and 13. Nine, 11 and 13. Yeah. Big ages, really important times. Yes. Yeah. Mine are older. I've got one who's now the one that got me on the journey is 26 now. And when he was two, so, you know, 24 years ago, my husband and I were just honestly seeking out training. <laughs> Let me guess. Is this a strong-willed child? He wasn't. He was oh, really? Super, no, he was super gentle. We used to call him Saint Sam. He was just the biggest hearted little dude. And it wasn't that it was acting out behaviors that gave rise to our desire. It was our, what we didn't, we just didn't want to screw this beautiful human being up with something that was unconscious patterning that we weren't aware of that was going to, you know, create um, harm. We just didn't want to create harm. (laughs) That's wonderful. That's very, I don't know, ahead of things. I feel like a lot of times parents, myself included. They wait for the problem. Yeah. Right. Yes. Instead of getting super proactive just because he was so um, precious and we just couldn't imagine like, we, you know, there would be problems. Of course, every day there are going to be problems. And we just didn't feel good about the go to your room or take something away. You know, the threats, the rewards, the punishments, anything that had to do with that or guilt or shame or like those were all the tools that were used on us. And it seems to be, I think, the common like soup that most of us grow up in. And um, it's inevitable, I think, that you end up doing that, you know, if you don't stop that right now kind of speech, and it's all about what can I do to manipulate your behavior to get you to change. Yes. I still remember one of our earliest like play dates that I had my son and a neighbor friend, and they were fighting over a toy. And like, I think they were hitting each other. And so I gave them a little like timeout, which I thought was just benign. I didn't think it was a big deal. Well, the mother came to get, and I explained, oh, I put him in timeout. And she was like, not, not pleased, you know? And it's funny. I just, I think that when you grow up in a family, you think your family and how you do things and then how you parent is just how, how it is. And that there's all these different ways and different choices we have in how we do things. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. But I do agree. We, you know, that's why I call it the conscious parenting revolution is that we're not aware of what we don't know. And we have so many embedded assumptions about pretty much every aspect of being, including parenting with regard to, you know, I hadn't thought about discipline or the fact that there were different ways to approach conflict resolution with children. You know, I actually went to law school and trained as a mediator. I have a lot of experience in the adult context of creating Um, connection and transformation and changes in behavior and all that kind of stuff with adults. And I guess there just was this huge hole around a distinction that children were somehow different and that you couldn't work with a child in the same way that you could with an older human being and that you needed to use more of a power over approach to force outcomes. And um, I guess intuitively, I just didn't feel good about it. And I wanted to find a way, not necessarily that you can reason with a, you know, really young child, but you can create connection and understanding and you can create empathy 
and you can create consideration of what's going on for them when they're giving you a great big no to your request and understanding it as, okay, well, that was a huge no. <laughs> what's that great big yes inside for you? Mm -hmm. What are you saying yes to? And what's getting in the way of you getting to where I would like you to be? And just that kind of an approach of more about wondering and sort of not looking at it as bad or defiant or in some negative context. But I do think our fallback is to see anything other than cooperation as talking back or sassy or defiant. There are all kinds of words we put around it. And the context of those words gives rise to our feelings and our own responses. And it just is this cascade of dominoes that fall from the original interpretation. Yeah, I think that's right on. And I think I, I know that better now, but when I was, <laughs> when I was an earlier parent, um, it felt like my, I won't use the language. I think I said to my husband, but it was, I felt like my kids were messing with me, like intentionally pushing my buttons because yeah. they know me and they know. So it, I came to sort of start to realize like, it's not about what they're doing as much as which button it's pushing on me and how do I then manage yeah. my own buttons, you know, cause I yeah. like to pretend I don't have any cause mm. I'm a therapist. So obviously I just have worked out all the, all the kinks. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's always the therapists who come to my class that are the most fun. Oh, because I'm sure. They're so good with other people's kids. It's their own where they have their emotions involved. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden what I can do and how I can support you over here, I can't do for myself. Right. And, you know, hopefully there's not a lot of guilt or shame around that either. It's just that shared field of, yeah, we can't always support ourselves in the way that we can support others. Yes. I love that. So when you first started on your path to figuring out how to do this differently? What were sort of the earlier things that you learned? What sort of helped mm. change your mindset from what you had been sure. offered earlier in life? Yeah. You know, um, there are so many pennies that dropped as I went on my path of, you know, actually attending lots and lots of different people's trainings and then becoming certified in various ones, modalities. And over the last 25 years, having, I think, just kind of been able to integrate and create a program of my own, which is the guidance bridge to parenting and a 90 day reset. And what I, I, I gleaned was a lot about how I hear you and, and that I have a responsibility for how I hear you, which just opened up a whole different portal in consciousness for me, that there was something about, I I have this, this incoming information and with, without realizing it, how I'm experiencing what you're saying is, is actually in my field of control. I can choose to hear it this way. And I think you were just talking about it. I'd call that the negative view of children. I can choose to hear it as um, manipulative, out to get me, pushing mom's buttons on purpose, you know, I can interpret it through that filter or I can step back from that. I can choose another route and I can see it as it's not about me. <laughs> this is an expression of what's going on inside of you. This expression that's happening over in this other human being is an expression of their internal worlds, their unmet needs, their, their stuckness, maybe their inability to express themselves, whether it's because of language, age, um, you know, 
big, strong feelings that they don't know how to regulate. But it's really not about my narrative about what I'm projecting they're doing to me. And so just that idea that, wow, I can choose how I hear you. And I can put a certain set of ears on and hear you with those ears. And I'm going to, within myself, evoke these responses. By flipping the ears out and putting a different pair on, I actually internally will have a different experience of this situation. I didn't have to do anything to you, by the way, in order to create those profound differences internally. Yes. I love that. What, what, it, what do you think are the biggest roadblocks that people find internally to allow for that mental shift to happen? What do you think are the stumbling blocks that you see? Yeah. Um, well, the biggest ones that come up are that I think we put ourselves in the position of the direct object and there's something about this initial issue of other people make me feel and they evoke within me the feelings that I'm experiencing. Therefore, I have to manipulate them and get them to stop it. And when I'm oriented toward this, I call it the external locus of causality, like something outside of me causes this within then all my energy is focused on getting them to stop. And, and, you know, as you said earlier, it's actually not out there somewhere. The conflict is in here somewhere. And my inability to connect it back to something about some different, you know, sense of, you know, I really identify that as a good mom, my kids shouldn't act this way. And so when my, my kids are acting this way, it's a reflection on me. It makes me look bad. So I would say that, you know, that's one of the biggest ones is that there's a mindset around my kids aren't a reflection of what's going on within themselves. They're either well-behaved or they're not. And if they're not, then I'm not a good mom because I'm failing to create children that are going to be, you know, polite and not embarrassing me and all this kind of stuff. And again, it's back to, it's about me as the parent, my skill level, my lack of skill level me taking it personally, if they're falling apart so that I have some sense of, you know, shame around it. It's just this huge, this huge shift around your children are going to fall apart. And it's not embarrassing to you. If you experience that way, then there's something about you experiencing your children as a reflection of you. You know, Alice Miller was one of my favorites in the drama of the gifted child. She talks about having been affected by her mother and this idea that as a child, she learned my job is to make mom feel okay. My job is to reflect back to mom, what she wants me to say here, do it's not to differentiate. It's not to separate. It's not to have my own voice. Mm -hmm. It's to subjugate all of that in order to support mom feeling okay about mom. Mm -hmm. So this cathecting, I think, happens through the ages and allowing our children to separate, individuate, have their own responses, whether they're falling apart and, you know, showing us that they're struggling and that we could really get in there and support them. And if we read it that way, then we can be empathic and understanding and loving when they're falling apart rather than angry, embarrassed, and um, responding in a way that makes the child feel like there's something wrong with them. I, I, as you're talking, I, I have all these flashbacks of 
moments that I maybe wasn't as empathetic because I was at my wit's end, you know, just feeling like, oh my gosh, there's three little kids all at the same time. And, um, and I think mommy's bandwidth mom needs that oxygen mask so much. Yes. And I think it's harder now with communities, like people moving for work, not having the same kind of nest that maybe was once available. And I'm not saying that it was always available to everyone, but I just think it's hard when you don't have more extended networks for support. Um, and the other thing I was thinking about is just being older. I feel like I'm a little bit more receptive to this message. Mm, Do you mm. find that ever with that, that parents, as they get into the process, they're kind of like, okay, (laughs) I don't know what I'm doing. Help me. Like, do you, yeah, you know, because a lot of parents are judging themselves, of course, and they're judging themselves and they're thinking other people are judging them too. And they might be because, you know, breaking out of the world of judging and being able to see behavior just as behavior, that whole reframe around, it's not good behavior, bad behavior. It's just behavior that either is getting in the way of me meeting my needs or behavior that's not getting in the way of me meeting my needs. It's behavior that, you know, is a reflection of what's going on in the other person, but it's having an impact on me meeting my needs. So I need to get involved in addressing it, but not from the place of you're so rude. Mm -hmm. Um, You're such a naughty child, you know, and then start labeling with those judgment words. Yeah. Because again, the judgment words are a reflection of me. You know, Marshall Rosenberg was one of my teachers. He used to say, what you think about me is none of my business. What a beautiful way to live, to be so clear that someone else's judgments of me has nothing really to do with me. Right. But it sure does tell me a lot about their mindset. It tells me a lot about what, you know, the ways in which they're poisoning the atmosphere, you know, with their toxic perspectives. Yes. And it's not helpful. It doesn't build connection. It breaks down relationships, but it's still not about me. And so, you know, and it doesn't mean that I don't have to process it. You know, even other people, when I'm clear that this is all about them, it's still hard to be around. Right. So I think we're all seeking understanding and little children are too. And, you know, they have, of course, a limited bandwidth in terms of their ability to express themselves clearly about what's happening. They can't tie their feelings to their own unmet needs. So we have to teach. Yes. Teach them words, you know, name it to tame it, be able to express it. And when they're in the stage where they can't, they're going to get more wound up and they need even more empathy Mm -hmm. and understanding. I like to say that children um, need our compassion the most when they appear to deserve it the least. That makes so much sense. And it's easy. It's easy for me to sit here when nothing bad has happened. Bad. I shouldn't, I'm putting air quotes around bad. Well, no, um, but we have disruptive. Disruptive difficult. is a good way to say it. Yes. It's hard sometimes for me to think straight and I can see how that is a challenge. And I just that my system can get overstimulated. And then, so I sure. can't get the rational part of my brain to then, Oh, you need compassion right now because I'm also overstimulated and just kind of managing some of those feelings. And one of the things I really realized during this pandemic and the time we're more, the kids are back in school. We're kind of moving around slowly in the world. But when we were home, I feel like I really got a sense of who each of my kids is in a way that I never had before Mm. because we were always so busy just running around. And I think that the pace of life can sometimes get in the way 
of having that space for compassion because you need to have yeah, a totally. moment to, to be able Absolutely. to have it, to access it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you have to be so purposeful about creating these ways that we explicitly set time aside for self-care of ourselves and we model it for our children. And we say, you know, it's so important every day of our lives to reflect. And, you know, I think a lot of people have a gratitude practice and, you know, just take stock of everything we're grateful for because it's so easy to focus on the negative. And, you know, we know the tendency of the mind is to focus on the negative and that some ridiculous percentage of our thoughts are negative. They're also inaccurate. And they're also the ones that we entertain the most. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when we know that that's the tendency of the mind, it's really great to talk about it and to say to ourselves and the kids and, you know, our partners and family members. And, you know, when everybody wants to go down the road of complaining, it's like, let's all take a deep breath. Let's almost like build it into our day to go, yeah, you know, there's that tendency of the mind cropping up again really wanting to focus on the negative, you know, we all know that chances are, statistically speaking, it's probably untrue. And so, you know, well, I know it's not easy to break the habit of wanting to spend a lot of time in the negative thoughts. Since we know they're probably untrue, maybe we can challenge them, you know, or we can just be with them, sit with them as opposed to believe them and start to just introduce some ways to manage the mind mm -hmm. because the tendency of the mind is always going to get in the way of regulation. Yes. And so, you know, just head on, let's talk about, you know, what the mind likes to do. It likes to hang out in the past, regrets, 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 or it likes to like freak out about the future and just fill us with anxiety. So, you know, be here now, present moment. What can we do to support that so that we begin to realize it doesn't have to rule us. It doesn't have to take us where it wants to go on these little journeys. We're the ones who are able to be with it and be like, oh, there's my mind again. Mm -hmm. Want to go hang out in the past about that, what, that day I blew it. Yes. And like keep feeding me, you know, a major dose of guilt and shame. And, you know, I'm not going to just let it do that mm -hmm. because I have, I have the ability to get bigger than what's bugging me. And so I like to talk about getting bigger than what's bugging me. I love that. I sometimes when I'm working with clients, I'll call it the uninvited guest that like comes and puts their muddy boots on your, your couch and, Absolutely. Just like, and you kind of know they're going to show up at some point, but you kind of have to manage like, Oh, Hey, got a new lock on the door. <laughs> can't, can't yeah, work it. You know, it's like roomies, the guest house. Yes. Yes. And every day we're going to have these uninvited folks show up mm -hmm. and they show up in the form of thoughts. Yes. And they're just thoughts. And, you know, when we begin to realize like, you know, well, where does the thought come from? Mm -hmm. Do I generate my own thoughts? To what extent am I in control of what guest shows up that day? Yeah. And I think for the most part, it's about tuning the radio station and realizing when I'm on this radio station, I get this whole host of visitors. And when I turn over to here, a whole nother group show up, you know, and when I turn here, a whole nother group show up. And so it's this idea that there has to be a relationship between the radio stations that I'm tuning into, the thoughts that are coming, those uninvited guests, and something about me and my energy level that gives rise to what those are, let alone this idea of, well, just because that thought showed up, it doesn't make it true. It doesn't mean I have to believe it. Right. It's just there. It's just a thought. 
just like an emotion. Yes. It's there. I can be with it. I don't want to pretend it's not there. I want to acknowledge it. I want to see it. I want to be able to turn toward it and go, well, okay, visitor, what if you, you know, what is there embedded in this? That's a value to me. Yeah. Do you ever do any work with like visualization or that kind of thing? Like sort of creating the image of what you want to see? You know, what I do is a a slightly different thing. I do a whole um, practice around being with, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard of Eugene Gendland and focusing or the focusing Institute, but Gendland was a philosopher and a, and a, um, he was also a psychologist and he was at the university of Chicago back in the day with Thomas Gordon and Marshall Rosenberg and all the people who were my teachers. And so I trained in Jenlin's focusing, which is really about getting bigger than what's bugging you and being self and present. So being self and present is this sense of tuning into, you know, depending on the vernacular, you might call it your higher self, or you might call it that big space that is the space that holds all of it. So when I talk about getting bigger than what's bugging you, it's about really getting sense of self that's so big that you're able to be the big container for the parts of you that are knotted up, for the parts of you that are struggling. And it's this sense of being able to turn towards something in you, to be with something in you, to sense how it would like you to be with it in order for it to feel it's accepted just the way it is. And it can be that way for as long as it wants to be. Mm. There's no sense of you're wrong. This part of you needs to be cut out of you. This part of you doesn't belong there. It's that sense of, well, no, of course, everything has a place. Mm -hmm. As long as I'm not identified with it, I can be with anything. Yeah, And I can be with it for as long as it needs to be just the way it is. But the minute you have that atmosphere of, I'm just going to be with you. And I'm going to love and accept you just the way you are. Then all of a sudden, everything gets like, that's so great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It almost reminds me of the people I've spoken to about um, intuitive eating and like food losing its power over you kind of thing. It's like, if you can have a bite of the brownie, the brownie isn't on this like celebrated altar of like untouchable things and it loses some of its power. And it reminds me of that, just that if you can, if you can know that you're going to have the experience of all human emotions, mm. it, it, you don't, you don't fight it as much. Like yeah, just, it's, oh, it's he- so much about how we relate, you know, it's so much about how we relate to these things that are happening in our inner world. And, you know, I don't know, I think everybody has a different experience of their inner dialogue and even whether they have a context for their inner dialogue is, is something else that I think is so important when we're raising children is to have the language for when those big feelings show up Mm -hmm. um, or those repetitive negative thought patterns show up or the anxiety shows up to be able to be with them reflecting back saying, sounds like there's something there you know, right there. And, you know, how would you like to be with it? And as you start to use the words of how would you like to be with it, then there's that sense of, well, then you're not it. Mm. It's not who you are. It's there. There's something there. Let's see what it is. Like now we're on a adventure, Mm -hmm. like, wow, let's see what it is. It's brought something for us to learn. It's got its own perspective. 
And the perspective may be really young. It could be a really young part of even a young person. And it's got its own view of things that could just be a three-year-old's view. And it's okay. We can be with it as long as we're not identified with it. But, you know, these tangles and knots inside can get really complex. Mm-hmm. Yes. So what is the way that you work with families? How do you, how, how does this process work if someone is interested in getting help? Yeah. So I do a 90 day parenting reset and, you know, the 90 day parenting reset is so that people can just have a reboot. And in the reboot process, we don't know what we don't know. And so, you know, step one is I'm unconsciously unskilled. I don't even know what I don't know. And then step two is, oh my God, now I know all this stuff I don't know. (laughs) And that's where you're conscious of all the skills that you don't have. And then step three is to really become consciously skilled. And the conscious skills, you know, there's a huge treasure trove out there. And and that's really what a 90-day reboot does, is it takes us from unconsciously unskilled to consciously skilled. And then, you know, for people who want to go from consciously skilled to unconsciously skilled, where these are now my defaults, that's a longer journey. And so, you know, it really depends on how far one wants to go on the path um, in terms of whether they will then want to go further and spend more time. But the 90-day parenting um, reset is going to help everybody just go from ineffective to effective to creating the ways in which we can be with our kids to create conflict resolution on a day-to-day basis where there's like, oh, okay, so let's figure out how we can we do this so that everybody's needs are met. There's no rewards. There's no punishments anymore. Everything is really about connection, mm-hmm. connection, and then having those basic skills to be able to resolve conflict. Yes. I love that. And I, I would imagine it's a very powerful experience for partners to go through together because yeah. not only are we bringing what we grew up with, then the other person's bringing what they grew up with. Absolutely. And we all have mixed feelings about whatever that was. And um, it just to get on the same page with like a strategy, with a plan, instead of just feeling yeah. like being like ad hoc all the time. And it, it gives a context where, you know, it's no fault, no blame, no guilt, no shame. I mean, that's, you know, the sort of like the, the whole soup that we're going to go through is it's not about finding blame or making somebody wrong. It really is. Life is happening. We all showed up with whatever impressions we had over a course of a lifetime. And those impressions are definitely affecting how we show up in our relationships. And it's kind of like, you know, I, I like to just say, non-volitional responses. These are the patterned responses. The pattern is doing its thing. What comes with the pattern are certain behaviors. And if you think you're your behaviors, then you might go into a whole shame spiral. And responsibility is, wow, you know, I'm not my behaviors and yet I'm going to be responsible for what just happened (laughs) because it came through me. And the pattern was like wildly activated. And I recognize that when that pattern is activated, I, I, I'm responding in ways that I wish I hadn't. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I'm going to show up, I'm going to show up and just be responsible for it. And then I'm going to learn new skills so that this doesn't keep happening. Yes. And that's, 
really the kind of fabric that I like to hold the whole process in is that this is not about somebody being wrong. It's about somebody being responsible. Yes. Yeah. And I was just listening to um, Brene Brown's podcast with the Gottmans about couples therapy. And you think about how difficult it is just for adults to talk to each other and communicate clearly. And then you bring in the power dynamic of a parent and a child. And so you kind of think as the parent, you get to decide what this relationship is. And it's, I like what you're saying about just sort of taking more responsibility for, for that power, like with great power comes great responsibility. You know, you have to manage that power well, instead Mm -hmm. of just kind of flinging it around. Well, and that's the difference between the power over. Mm -hmm. So when you have the, you know, what I want to call it, the age old discipline approach, the age old discipline approach is, you know, you'll do it because I told you to. You'll do it because I'm the father. You'll do it because I'm the mother. You'll do it because with my role comes power. And here's the thing. Yes, with your role does come power. And if you want to destroy a relationship, you're going to use your power. And the more power you use, the less influence you have. Mm-hmm. And then parents get fired and they don't know what they did. They don't have any clue. Like, how did I get fired? Why aren't my kids talking to me, to me anymore? Why don't they open up? why is little Johnny lying to me? And, you know, it's as though there's no, there's, there's a lack of, oh my goodness, I have been acting in such a way that has given rise to this response. These were the seeds that I planted. This is the harvest that I reaped. So that tying it back into, oh, wow. Mm -hmm. The benefit of that is that when you realize I created the harvest, then I also can plant a new one. And I can reap a different harvest. So it's really empowering a parent. You know, there might be a moment where there's some regret because of course, nobody sets out to plant this harvest where your kids fire you and they don't open up to you anymore and they don't come snuggle and they don't see you as the person that they want to open their heart to. So that's heartbreaking. And that, of course, I get a lot of people who've been, you know, parents that are fired because they never wanted to be fired. Mm. Of course, these are their precious little you know, children and they wanted to be so close. But if you use rewards and punishments, you're using your power over. And if you're using that whole sort of like threats and manipulation to get changes in behavior, you will reap that harvest, the retaliation, the rebellion and the resistance. And so the retaliation, rebellion and resistance, then, I mean, it's kind of horrible, but when you start to reap the harvest, then you begin to get angry because you're not getting the kind of cooperation and respect that you thought you would. Mm -hmm. And so then it just becomes a terrible, terrible pattern where one thing activated this, I call it the secondary problem. Now you've got all these secondary problems, which had nothing to do with getting them to clean up the kitchen or take out the trash or do their homework or share in the family chores or whatever it was. There was something that you didn't like, and you wanted to interact with them to get a change in behavior. You used a response of, if you stop, um, if you don't stop doing that, you know, no TV or no dessert or no play dates or no something, 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 they then don't feel heard and understood. Well, I was going to get to it, but I'm right in the middle of something because nobody really listened to their perspective. And then you've just activated this whole thing. Now it starts to become like a monster in the room mm-hmm. and, um, and cleanup is needed in a big way. Yes. Oh my goodness. Oh, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
what, um, I'm just thinking about what we've talked about so far. Is there anything that you were hoping you'd get to say more about that you were, that I haven't asked you about? You know, I like to say, see your children beautiful. And if you just see everybody with those eyes of, okay, you're beautiful and you're falling apart, then when your children are falling apart, it's easier to find access to, oh my gosh, this is just a little human who didn't feel heard, understood from their perspective. They're having such a hard time. And I guess the other thing that I really noticed with a lot of parents is that I group them into the belongers and the autonomous children. And the belongers are the kids that want to please you because it makes them feel good about themselves. So they get a lot of their own sense of self-esteem from being the kid that makes other people happy. And then there are the autonomous children who are super self-directed and they'll risk your disapproval in order to stay connected to their own sense of what they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And these are the kids that are called um, oppositional defiant. These are the kids that are called um, explosive. And these are the kids that will explode because they don't know how to handle not being able to include their perspective, their vision, their sense of things in this conversation. And they're the people for whom rewards and punishments will never work because they'll just say, fine, go ahead. Send me in my room. I don't care. Yeah. You can't ever get the upper hand with them. Mm -hmm. So whatever you were using to discipline the kids that want to keep you happy, it will never work over here. Yeah. You're instantly going to generate a resentment flow. And unfortunately, these kids then are labeled as bad kids, problem kids, as opposed to autonomous children whose needs for autonomy were not being acknowledged. Mm -hmm. They needed choice. They needed to be able to sense that their perspective mattered. These kids are prepared to sacrifice themselves. And I worry about both groups because these kids over here that are the ones that want to make you happy have somehow lost a sense that their own happiness matters too. And they can become disconnected to their own sense of self in their own inner voice. And when they get to stand up and speak for themselves and they can forget that because it's not encouraged No, because it's so much easier for parents to have kids do as they're told. And it's not necessarily healthy for the child because then they don't differentiate between which outer voices do I follow and do as I'm told and which ones are actually harming me. Yes. And how do I stand up to those voices? Because I've been groomed not to speak up my entire life. And if you do that long enough and over time, children will become disconnected from their ability to stand for themselves. And that's horrifying. Well, I cannot be the only person listening to you talk with lots of snapshots of my parenting journey flashing before my eyes um, in good, in great ways, not in, not in, you know, but just like, it, it makes sense. I think the things you're talking about make a lot of sense. So I'm excited to share you as a resource to people who are looking to get support on this parenting journey. Um, and what's that? I said, that's so great. Yeah. I mean, I know that I was in search of and, um, and it just changed my life to have resources. I love that. So the last last question I typically ask people is what is sort of a touchstone habit that you implement for yourself to sort of keep yourself feeling grounded and, and able to see things clearly and help people in in your best possible way. That's so great. Those touchstone habits. I love it. 
Yeah, no, I have a meditation practice, a breathing and meditation practice. And so every morning come hell or high water, <laughs> I, I just, I carve that time out and I just, you know, every day is so busy that, you know, even this morning, you know, I was like, oh, I've got so much to do. And I was like, yeah, and your state of mind is not going to be what you want it to be all day long. So take the time and go, you know, do the breathing and the meditation and spend, I spend an hour every day, just kind of setting the framework to keep my mind where I want it to be. I love that. I cannot tell you how many people I, you would think, and I'll do it here and there. I'll meditate because people, I mean, people speak to it changing their entire lives. And mm -hmm. I, I, it, at one of these points, like when you're talking about planting the seeds, I'm getting so many seeds planted at one, <laughs> at some point, there's going to be a major oh. like meditation garden over here, but Oh, <laughs> uh, thank you so much. And so where can people find more information about you if they're looking for you as a resource? Yeah, great. So I have, um, there's the 90 day parenting reset.com or they could go to conscious parenting revolution.com or just katherinecelery.com. Um, so, you know, there's a bunch of different places. I have a few Ted talks on unconscious parenting and the rebellion, we created it, we can solve it. And I really like that one because it really gives people a lot of context to understanding the rebellion within their own family, let alone the one that we see in high schools and that we see in society on a bigger scale. Because everything goes from the macro to the micro to the macro to the micro. Yes, that makes so much sense. Well, I'm excited to learn more and I'm going to be checking out your TED Talks. So I'll, and I'll link those in the show notes. Um, so people can check them out also. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. This was so great. Loved being here. So fun. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Family Brain. I will continue to post content on the Family Brain Podcast Instagram page. So check me out there. I also occasionally am posting on TikTok, Family Brain Podcast, and not as much on Facebook anymore, but I... Um, if anything important happens, I will be sure to update Facebook as well. So thanks so much for listening and stay tuned for future episodes. TBD. Thanks. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.